0: Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It
1: is fantastic to be back,
0: Paul. Uh, Our guest this week, I'm delighted uh, he's back on the show. We had uh, a a fantastic response the last time uh, he was on. Um, We're going to talk all things fixed income rates, which are... Obviously massively important part of what 's happening in markets, um, but also uh, what 's happening to uh, the cost of people 's mortgages uh, is an important factor there. Our guest is senior rate strategist at ANZ Martin Wetton Marty great to have you back
2: great to be here thanks very much for having me
0: as I mentioned uh, the last time uh, you came on uh, the show I, I got a lot of emails and notes from people saying that was great you should do more of that and uh, to be honest, I think it's great that, you know, you're probably, um, I would say, the most prominent fixed income commentator uh, in the Australian market at the moment. I'm because sure you're on, tell my
2: parole s- officer of that one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, at least you're out there trying to talk about it and explain it to people on a daily basis. So, um, And in sort of leading up to this, one of the things we talked about was that uh, there are... Um, some misconceptions and some confusion about um, uh, uh, what happens in in fixed income markets, what drives prices, um, and uh, some of the uh, flow-on effects that there are for the economy and for input prices and all sorts of things um, uh, uh, throughout financial markets and the the economy more broadly. Um, So we're going to tackle a whole bunch of that. Now, some of this is complex. Um, I think anybody listening to this will, uh, will learn a lot. Um, but, uh, and there'll be a lot of uh, new terminology, I think, for people, um, because this kind of, this area of the market just doesn't get raised and covered in the same way that uh, particularly equities, uh, equities do. Um, okay, so let's start with uh, where rates are uh, at the moment. So six months ago, Everybody was talking about the end of the 30-year bull market in bonds, you know, it's all over. Rates are going higher and they'll go higher forever. I remember Jeff Gundlach tweeting that on the day that uh, I think the U.S. 10-year treasuries went through, through 3.14 and he thought that that was the mark and that the dam had been breached and rates were going to be higher forever. Here we are, a few months later, and U.S. 10 years... a fizzle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, a massive anticlimax. Uh, U.S. 10 years, uh, which is the global benchmark, um, are, are down below uh, 2.9, or down around 2.9% again. Yes.
2: What has happened? Uh, well, I guess reality check. Um, one of the reasons why we were selling off so much is we had a Fed that was hiking and we were also seeing some inflation numbers that were a little bit stronger. We had what everyone talked about at the beginning of this year was this synchronized growth pulse around the world where every economy, every major economy was growing for the first time in about a decade. And the upswing was something that markets people just do all the time. We, Our biggest forecasting error is we extrapolate the now. And so it was very much uh, around that. And if you go back a few years, every single year, the forecast put out in January is rates will end up the year higher. And the other thing they'd always say was that uh, Chinese growth would collapse, but you know, that actually <laughs> hasn't happened. But rates haven't gone up higher. They did. They actually have over the last couple of years. So if you look at the starting point in mid-16, when we, we were actually in a very fearful position, we had, uh, I think it was 43% of the world's global bond market. So that's sovereign debt uh, was below zero percent in yield. Now, that's a concept that uh, not just bond people struggle to understand. Um, i sorry, not just equity people, bond people struggle to understand that one too. But what we got was, we, we went up very sharply, the Fed did start its hiking. We've rolled over a little bit this year, whether it is trade wars, whether it is disappointment on inflation. Um, we just haven't gone on with the move. That said, we are still higher. And I think uh, in an environment where the Fed continues to hike, where the new man in charge at the Fed, Jay Powell, is sort of, well, damn the torpedoes. Um, EM, you do what you like, but we're still hiking. And even former Chairman Greenspan in the last couple of weeks has popped his head up and said, listen, they're going higher. It's it's in market rates, not just policy rates. Um, It's just that the higher we go... um, From this zero lower bound we've been, uh, the market starts to feel as though, well, this is going to be very contractionary. And so it sets its long rates lower, or not up as fast, and they just struggle to go above uh, this 3%, which for a lot of people is, well, that's where your Fed funds is going to end up. That's therefore where your 10-year rate should peak. So in a way, it's a fair call. There are some factors around this. I mean, markets don't move in a linear fashion. And so there will be times where this spikes up to probably 350. But then equally, when it was at 310, I think some of the people we were talking to saying, well, the risk is this gets back down to 285. Lo and behold, it does. It will move up, it'll move back down. The trend is higher, the rate of that trend, that's the one you've got. That's the one we have to look for as strategists.
0: So there's an interesting uh, uh, question in here. So one is obviously the, the, the question of inflation, right? So, yeah. so US inflation starting to pick up a bit of heat. So you get the Fed uh, raising rates. But at the same time, uh, one of the big themes for bonds, particularly for longer dated bonds, is that it's a uh, it's a fear play if you like right so yeah. you buy more bonds when uh, when 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 you when, when the market is fearful bonds will rally yeah um so talk about the 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 connection between those two forces at the moment and how it's how it's working out so right sir sure. are-
2: and i think one of the people who responded to your tweets sort of asked about that uh, the fixed income market and whether it's all over i'd probably just say if the risk around bonds is at their toast um, you want to be owning a cave in the south island of new zealand filled with, filled with tin food water and guns but fixed income by the very words, it is fixed income. That's why it doesn't go up very much or down very much in your capital value. You you just get the income stream, which is fixed. Um, but when you're talking about, I guess, to your question, you, you've got to think about um, the different parts of the curve. The front end of the curve is determined by monetary policy. The mid to the mid part of the curve, where well, you'd call it five and ten year, is determined a little bit by demand and supply. The long end, which I think is where the fear part comes in, is they can't hike rates too much. And if they do, inflation will get crushed and so will growth. And I want to own the longest dated high quality asset because when they do cut rates again, the yield on that will fall and I get the benefit of something called duration, which is the sensitivity to a move in interest rates. And in as rates go down, you want duration. As rates go up, you don't want it. It's your, it's your least best
0: friend. So, so as rates go down, the capital value of your investment
2: increases. Increases. Yeah. And if it's a, a one-month bond, it's not going to move very very much. You, you have to have a lot of it to make a difference. You don't need to own very much of the 30-year or in cases of, say, Argentina with its 100-year, France, uh, Ireland, Spain, Italy, or with 50s, 70s, and 100 years, you only own a little bit of it and you make a lot of money. Equally, you lose it too, if it goes the other way. I do remember, I think it
0: was Austria issued a 100-year bond, uh, you know, and um, I remember a strategist pointing out at the time that, um, you know, the last 100 years has been pretty interesting for Austria. Yes. Um, So, um, you know, how do we know, how can anybody be certain that Austria will, you know, exist as a country? Well, you can say in the
2: case of Argentina, how many defaults have they had in the last decade. Um, Or, you know, uh, Belgium didn't have a government until a few years ago. Or in, you know, your case, Ireland. Ireland borrowed 100 years recently at, I think, 2.45% coupon. Um, Back in the crisis, or post-crisis, in the euro crisis, they couldn't get 10-year money away. Yet they were able to get 100-year money away in in some decent size. So markets can forget. um, but yeah, look, there's a lot of interesting dynamics around that.
0: Yeah, sure. Okay, so we talked about short and long end of the curve, right? So one of the big things that we've said, so there is this consistent uh, pattern that you see the inversion of the yield curve, which yeah. basically when uh, short end rates, say, say are one or two years, uh, the, the rates there get higher than the than the ten. Yep. Year, so that the the relationship between the two and the ten, um, when twos are higher than 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 the yield on the ten. Uh, you tend to have a recession uh, that comes into play in the US after that. What store do you place in
2: this? Look, um, is it a causal relationship? Uh, No, I don't think it is, or we don't think it is. There are some reasons why you have to look at it, and it is important. Every time we have had the inverted curve, we have had these recessions, or virtually every time. Um, One of the reasons people cite is that The front-end rates go up so much, and maybe you use the cash rate here or the two-year, they are are fairly uh, similar, Um, it goes up too fast and it causes a policy mistake and everyone thinks, well, they're going to have to cut rates and so the 10-year goes inverted. Another thing is simply what banks do. Banks have always borrowed short and lent long, although in recent years, regulations have meant we've actually had to borrow long, so I'm not sure that the old relationship is as valid now. Another thing that you have to think of at the moment is... Quantitative easing. Central banks are taking a lot of uh, bonds off the books of of, uh, banks and governments. They're financing governments, let's be honest. Uh, And what that does is it distorts the long end of the curve, whether you're talking the 10 or the 30 year. But banks make their money from what's called maturity transformation. That is, they borrow at a lower rate and they lend at a longer rate. So you take your deposits as a simple example. They might pay you here in Australia 1.4% and they lend it to you for a 30-year floating rate mortgage at four, three and a half, thereabouts. So they're making that spread. Now, there's a credit element in that. There's a risk element, but ostensibly that is your spread. If you move that spread, if the bond investments they make, they sell the two-year or they take deposits and put into a five-year or a 10-year and that yield is lower, then they are losing money on that trade. So it means that their credit tightening seizes up or they start to seize up their, their credit. They don't lend as much. That chokes off growth in the economy. And therefore, you get that
0: you get lower recession. Yeah.
2: Now, yes, there's a causal element to that, too. But it is also coincident. It does matter, though. It does matter. And look, everyone's talking about it. Greenspan said the other day to bring him up for a second time. He said, "530s in the US is the curve I watch. Yes, it could flatten, but you know, let's also think about some of the inflation. It is starting to pick up. It's hit the mark in f- for the US, but that means the Fed hikes that pushes up that front end. But if bond investors who buy out the back end say, "Hey, I'm not getting paid term premium or compensation for holding an asset for 30 years," it will re steepen
1: question I wanted to go and ask you is uh, there's been a lot of talk, you, uh, you touched upon quantitative easing, obviously uh, the big uh, flip side of this thing that at the moment is uh, they're talking about quantitative tidying in the United States, but uh, just rough calculations at the back of my head, and I think the, the uh, ECB and the BOJ are still buying, what, 60, 70 billion worth of sovereign bonds every month. How much do you think that's actually weighing on that long end of the curve? And, and because that's what everyone's kind of uncertain, you talk about you know, this, this historic relationship whenever the, uh, the yield curve goes negative, almost always ends in a recession. Is it giving it a distorted view at the moment because the central bank purchases that are still going on at this very point in time?
2: I think it is in Japan, and Japan's sort of the monster for QE that's been going on for a while. and. You know, while the the US is going into QT, and so will the ECB, probably in our lifetime, almost Japan won't be. They'll they'll own they'll everything at some point. But what they do is they target the ten year yield. By targeting the ten year yield, they are denuding domestic investors of yield. So a life insurance company that has a fixed rate annuity has to have an, a yield that uh, matches its liability. That's why they go offshore. They buy a lot of Australian debt in various formats. They buy the US. They buy Europe. But um, if the central banks there are taking that money out as well, what you do is you pull all the yields lower. And if Japan is your anchor, and I think this is important. Japan is no longer your anchor. That's actually probably more important. But if Japan is your anchor, there's only so far as uh, a, a, another bond in another country that Japan will invest in. So forget Argentina, you th- you're thinking G3, et cetera, or G- G10. Um, there's only so far it can sell off versus the JGB. And yes, it will get to extremes at times, but QT, yes, the, uh, they're taking a lot out, but this year we're actually getting net supply of bonds for the first time in a couple of years. So demand is always important to talk about, but you've got to relate it to the supply as well. So we're getting supply... That helps yields go up a little bit, but um, what is more important is as QT continues to happen, what we got from QE was about a 100 basis point drop in the US Treasury yield in the 10-year. It's a 10-year government bond. Uh, About the same, a little bit more for the Aussie market. Do we unwind by a similar amount? Well, they will be very careful about the way they unwind this. So we probably do, but in a... um, in a time period that is stretched out well i
0: think one of the things that you, you've said uh, pointed out before which is that you know the qe era um gave you you know um low you gave you good um stock higher stock prices yep. higher asset prices um and when you take that away uh you will get the opposite. Um, so I think which is one of the really interesting questions, which is, you know, the era of low rates led to asset appreciation. Yep. Um, with enormous implications for all sorts of, uh, of things So people who held assets over the last uh, 10 years ago, have now become
2: very uh, wealthy very out of wealthy. it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, Paper wealth, that's the
2: key. That yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, true.
0: On
1: unrealized wealth. Uh, at the same time uh some they, have sold, out, they have they yeah. have
0: liquidated some but you know you know some people will have um you know yeah. um, taken some profits along the way um so the idea of this this end of QE era potentially giving you um you know you had low inflation high up, high asset prices end of QE may potentially give you not that
2: and and it should um i guess um what QE does is exactly that. It forces you out on the risk curve, and that's the intention of it, that people spend and, or borrow money, spend, and take some risk. Uh, combined with these very low interest rates, the, the problem you've had is that the hurdle rate for people has dropped. They don't want to take as much risk. If rates were at 5 or 6%, well, I need eight or nine to, to do something. So they would take the risk. Now it's so low, you, you're you sort of um, forgiven for any mistake you make because it can't be that costly. It's driven equity prices, bond prices, property prices around the world up. Uh, you know, you see some of the commercial property deals that get done at eye-watering yields that don't take account for credit risk because you sort of know the not the central bank is backstopping it, but the central bank policies are... Contributing to well, it doesn't matter. The cost isn't going to hurt me that much. So QT should take a lot of that out, but at the same time, it doesn't. It won't be as linear. Won't be linear as well because the economies have recovered in that time. So they're sort of self-generating their own profit. Uh, so they've healed. They've repaired their balance sheets, and they are doing well. The consumer, on the other hand, is fairly tapped out, uh, and that does mean that. They need to be careful on winding QT because if it means that the asset prices fall, you've got the denominator and the numerator here on a house price, and the, the uh, value of the house might change, but the debt doesn't. You've still got to pay that debt back. And if you're, okay, your wages aren't falling anymore, they're rising, but they're not rising very much anywhere. So you've still got to pay that back. And, and that puts a bit of fear into people's decision-making, uh, and it can have a real-world effects, obviously, on... on you know, savings rates and, uh, and and the way people spend their money.
0: So one of the big uh, in, just in terms of that consumer, uh, question. Uh, one of the absolutely, I think, one of the most important questions in for Australia's economy at the moment is what's happening uh, with the short end of yeah. the rates cor- curve, right? So so a few months ago, um, there were a few rumblings uh, about the money market. Now, when we talk about the money market, we talk about short-term interbank lending, right? Yeah. So,
2: Generally under one year in duration. Yeah.
0: So um, there was a bit of pressure there that rates had suddenly just jumped up. Um, there was a, maybe a little bit of twitchiness in the market. I think it settled down uh, again now since that period, sort of March-April. Um, but we are in this, what people are talking about, this rising rate environment. The cost of funding for banks is going up, and we've seen a handful of smaller lenders uh, start to raise their mortgage interest, uh, their mortgage rates, um, which is going cost to their cost their customers money. Um, uh, but it also goes to that uh, that point that you were making earlier, so you're starting to get this margin compression uh, on the financial system, and the question is, what the, you know do the banks absorb it do they pass it on um you know does it Get taken from shareholders, does it get passed on to customers, all of that kind of stuff. Now, so let's talk about that, right? So let's talk about what drives that because there are a number of different instruments. Yes. That's, that's
2: important to know. Denou- yeah. yeah.
0: Right. So, and we're going to get into this. This is going to be kind of exciting, a uh, whole bunch of we'll a bit of jargon. Get through.
2: all your acronyms out, ready
0: to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So who's ready? Let's,
2: let's start with BBSW. So, BBSW, Bank Bill Swap Rate. And that's effectively the level where um, Aussie banks, um, prime banks, can issue. Three, one three- and six-month bank bills. So they are physical bank bills. You can buy them and invest them. Not a lot of the bills actually get issued these days. It's an it's a reference rate, um, but it is a tradable rate. It references the futures. But importantly, what it references is if you take a loan on your mortgage, you, re- you reference the one-month BBSW rate, which is the one-month cost of us issuing paper. If you're a corporate or a... Um, or a debt issuer, the three-month rate. And if you're six months for anything longer than three years against, uh, is your floating rate. And so these things move independently of the cash rate. And it's really important to understand. And uh, before this, I put up a, a tweet of this showing the cash rate expectations and the BBSW. Now, BBSW is two things. It is cash rate expectations and a credit spread. That is what our risk-free spread, or our spread is versus the risk-free rate. Now, at the moment, it's not so much that we are seen as riskier, although there'd be a slight element in the price, I guess a Royal Commission or lower earnings generally does that. It's a very small component of it. It's, it's our ability to actually get funding. So um, we call this the plumbing of the market. Now, everyone knows the tap in their kitchen or bathroom, turn the switch and the money and the water comes out. Sometimes it only a little bit comes out. And think, oh, sorry, I've got to call a plumber. Hello. Well, that's us. (laughs) And the plumber explains, oh, yes, you've got this little widget in here, and it can be pretty costly to get these things fixed. But banks do um, a a little bit less of their funding through the short-term money markets. They do more long-term, and that's for uh, regulatory reasons, but they still borrow in in the front end of the market. And the BBSW versus OIS, which is called BOB. So there's your first acronym, BOB, Bill's OIS Basis. And that is OIS being overnight index swap, that is the cash rate expectations versus the bank bill, where a bank borrows. Historically, it was 15 basis points, so 0.15%. At the moment, it's 0.58. So that is a rise of uh, 43 basis points. It's very significant. That is almost two rate hikes. Now, people talk about whether you're a, a mortgage holder Sometimes corporate investors, they say, but the RBA is not hiking. No, it's not. And our expectations fairly similar to the rest of the street. 19, 2019, 2020 before they do. So why does the short-term money market move up? Well, because that's an independent variable. But we don't borrow, as in we, you, and I. Nor does uh, mum and dad out there, or, or banks borrow at the cash rate. There's about two and a bit billion dollars that trade there every day. The rest of the roughly $13 trillion of Australian debt out in the market trades at a spread. And uh, BBSW is a very important part. So when Bob goes wider, um, Bob is not your friend. Mm. Um, Bob's your unpleasant uncle, I guess. So talk, talk, talk
0: to me about what, what the forces are that's, that, 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 that put upwards pressure on that. So- okay,
2: so an Australian bank needs to get its funding. And let's say we're talking about short-term funding. It can go and issue bank bills. There's a certain amount of demand for um, a fund manager, and you can think of all fund managers, needing short-term liquidity. And they park their money in three-month ANZ paper, or I'll use ANZ because I work there, uh, and they get a yield. And that is roughly, you know, in the past, say, 25 basis points over the cash rate. So they get a nice little bit of extra yield. Um, If it goes to 50 over, we will say, oh, that's a bit expensive, but I guess we have to borrow it. Then we might say, well, actually, if we go to the US dollar market and we get US dollars and through the magic of the cross-currency basis market, which is swapping floating rate uh, interest rates in one currency to floating rate in another, we bring that money home because, remember, an Australian bank is lending to mum and dad for their mortgage in Aussie dollars. You don't need US dollars, so we swap those US dollars back. That might come in at a margin at twenty-two over. So we say, well, that's cheaper than borrowing it in, in in Aussie. I'll do US. But if that basis moves very high, i.e. it costs us more to go to the US market, we won't do that. We'll go to the Aussie market. But the Aussie market's kind of limited. There's only a certain amount we can do. So if it becomes clogged, the pipes become clogged, we've got a cost. Now we can choose to lift our deposits. We can choose to drop our deposits. That's, you know, a rate, that is. Um, We can choose to go and issue five-year debt or 10-year debt, but that's more expensive again. We can choose to pass it on to the mortgage holders. Never a politically easy thing to do, but, you know, we have a duty to shareholders and we have to pass through costs. But sometimes, maybe now more than others, it's a bit of a difficult uh, conversation to have. We could pass it on to corporate borrowers. We have to probably make that funding cost up one way or another. Sometimes we absorb it. Um, but I guess if our shareholder said, but you're absorbing all these costs and not passing it on, as the equity shareholder, I'm not very happy that my returns are going down. So our management or bank management would say, oh, well, that's, that's a little bit you know, uh, painful for us to have to explain that. So you have a lot of variables. Um, some of the other drivers of this are this thing called the repo market. Now, the repo market is, uh, it's a pretty simple concept. Um, Banks have trading desks, as we know, and those trading desks need to fund their holdings of securities. Why do they hold bonds? Well, they hold them so that customers can come and buy them or that customers sell them to us, and they have to be funded. Now, they're funded out of the central treasury of the bank, but the central treasury gets its money in at that BBSW rate and says, well, uh, David, um, you're the bond trader and um, your cost of capital is 100 basis points over where we get it because we've got to make a return. And you say, 100 over? Well, jeez, I'm not making any money on these bonds. Well, mate, you know, don't own them then. So you reduce your holdings. And the repo rate, if you... Well, let's say it's... Uh, OK, you are making some money out of it, but you've got to fund that. So you go to the repo desk. Now, the repo desk will give you cash for the bonds that you give them. We've got a number of players in the the repo market. The RBA is kind of the main one, and they in the market every day at 9.45 or 9.30, they have an auction for funds, and they issue between sort of one and a half and three billion per day. It's not enough. Now, they could do more, but I guess it's not their job to provide banks with liquidity for trading securities. It's up to the banks. But the banks are at a bit of a capacity due to regulations. The thing about repo is it's secured funding. So if you were a cash-rich investor and you could say to your bank, um, I will buy your bank bill at 2% or I will give it to you at the repo rate at 210 which is or 2% as well, it's got it the same number, which is secured, i.e. it's backed by government bonds. In a credit crisis, you're going to do the secured trade every single day. In another era, you might not care too much. You might want the exposure to the bank. But if the secured rate is higher than the unsecured rate, you'll lend it to the secured rate because you're crazy not to. And what we've had is this repo rate's pushed up. Mm. So BBSW has had to push up to compensate because us as a bank, we're saying, oh, everyone's putting their money into repo because they're getting a higher rate. We have to pay up for us. And it becomes a bit of a bidding war to get, to get funds But we're at a bit of a capacity issue with the repo market where we've got about um, 150 billion of repo outstanding in the market it's doubled in the last couple of years and the non-residents who are uh, say hedge funds and offshore investors are holding our paper but they need to fund it and they're at their limits with the banks so we've got a we've got a situation that is very difficult to resolve and it won't go away anytime soon, and what makes it worse is at the end of every quarter, it goes up because banks mark themselves at a quarter end. You remember this from your trading days. Get those securities off your book, David. We're having a snapshot. If you average it over a quarter, it might look a little bit different, but we snapshot at the thirtieth of June or thirtieth of sep.
1: So you, so your view is definitely that uh, you know, these funding pressures are going to persist.
2: Yes, they will come <laughs> back. they're easing now. they will come back again. Uh, first of SEP or thereabouts, and they'll go back up like a sine curve. And at the 30th of SEP, the interesting part about that is that's the three of the four major banks, that's ANZ, NAB and Westpac, who have their year-end then. It's also three months until the turn of the calendar year, and a lot of banks fund themselves over that three-month window. They're not going to lend to you over the end of the calendar year, which is a US bank year-end, because they say, don't want it over that year-end. It's Christmas holidays for many people they don't want securities, they don't want funding outstanding. It exacerbates September and December year end. So you will get worsening periods. Now, all of this would be fine if, as of tomorrow, that BBSW and repo spread came back down to 15 over the cash rate, and everyone said...
0: And what market participant, what market demand would drive
2: that lower? More cash coming into the system, or people not being worried about funding. But what we're getting is where the level is ossifying at a higher rate. So we're... We think we'll settle the bob spread, the bank bill over the OS spread at about forty-five oh, which is one and a half hikes, although with the credit spread it's sort of one and a bit hikes. So that is embedding a higher cost structure into the market, which kind of means for the RBA it delays any hike they do because you've got a higher funding.
0: Cost. Yeah, so because the thing is if the RBA was to hike in that environment. You're putting a rocket under that uh, that that uh, that upwards pressure on on the cost of money.
2: It would, yeah. I mean that because that's in an absolute sense. But what's happened here is this isn't just a spread between um, bills and almost widening, but the absolute rate hasn't changed. It is up. So if you're trying to get your funding, you might say, well, the spread might have narrowed for me, but what's my absolute rate? It's it's up. Funding costs are up. Another corollary of this is the government issues debt, as we know. And the government has to borrow uh, at a rate, uh, has to attract interest for its debt. If the repo rate where people fund to buy this debt is very high, call it 2.1%, we've been even higher than that, then you need to buy a bond that yields you more than 2.1%. Otherwise, it's a bad, it's a losing trade. So for the government, they're sort of in a slightly more difficult position as a result of that. So... These have real-world implications. You said earlier mortgages have gone up. Yeah, they have for some of the smaller banks. And the rough estimate, our own, plus I think what the RBA said, is about a 9 to 10 basis point rise so far. It really depends on how your funding is done. For some, it will be more.
1: So it- I, I just wonder whether the uh, the spillover effects into – because the vast majority of uh, of banks are funded through uh, retail deposits. That's where most of it comes through. Yes. Um, And whether that's going to have spillover effects into having to go and pay up for sticky retail deposits to uh, to go and fund, Uh, that's something they're just hypothesizing that that is a distinct possibility as well. So not just for borrowers, uh, but also people who are going to lend cash as well could potentially go and see a slightly higher uh, higher return in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. because yeah. we're, we're talking like with these short-end, uh, the, the, the funding markets, we're talking about 20% across the uh, Australian banks. That's right. About 20% of all funding is done through like the, the-
2: And we get about 60% of our money through deposits as the banking system. And that's a good thing because pre-GFC, that was 40 Which is globally
0: high, isn't it? Yeah. It is globally
2: high. It looks at the moment like it's starting to fall a little bit. Saving rates are also falling. Yeah. Um, that, I think, is something that we will, you know, maybe in a year's time, we'll say, goodness me, hasn't that dropped a long way? But that would be a problem. If we have to pay up for those deposits, what it immediately does is that does hurt the bank's net interest margin because that is the cost of funds that you're getting 60% of your funding
0: through. So one thing about this conversation, Dave, is uh, it, it reminds me of a, a particular bugbear of yours, which is that this uh, this thing where you often see uh, in you know people talking about banking that when they, let, when they uh, issue a mortgage, they, they create an asset out of thin
1: air mm. um,
0: that, that goes up. But actually, have they to, have to get
1: funded. You have to yeah. fund the mortgage. It doesn't that's just right. magically you know, spring out of nowhere and it's like, oh, we've just gone and created a million-dollar mortgage we've gone and lent you. No, you've got to go and fund that mortgage. And that's, uh, that's what the job of Treasury is to go and do then pass it on to the business unit.
2: Yep, exactly right.
0: You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest is Martin Wetton, senior rate strategist at ANZ, and we were talking. We are talking all things fixed income and uh, money markets and, and and the yield curve and so on. So, look, another thing I want to uh, uh, I want you to um, uh, in- in- enlighten us and share your wisdom on. Uh, Overnight Index Swaps. Uh, So uh, we've got another acronym, LOIS. OIS. Uh, O-I-S. But then there's there's LOIS Lois, as well. LIBOR
2: O-I-S. So that's the US dollar BB. That's Bob. Bob's cousin in the US (laughs) is called LOIS. So (laughs) uh, Bob and LOIS are friends. Um, Bob and LOIS have done a lot of things together. Bob and LOIS are currently... Uh, separated, yeah, <laughs> as in they are moving in independently from each other. Last month or so, yeah. But OIS is, um, is, a, it's, I guess it's a product that is an overnight index swap. It is a way of both hedging and speculating on what a central bank's cash rate will do. So you have two forms of looking at OIS. You have meeting date OIS, and you have um, one month, for two months. So meeting date means... If you were to have the view that I'm sure that the RBA is going to hike rates in December, some out there would say cut rates, but let's go with hike. Um, If they were going to hike, you would look at where the OIS is priced for the December RBA meeting, and that would be probably around um, 1.51%. So we know the cash rate at the moment is 1.5. So 1.51 says there is one basis point. Uh, priced into the idea of a 25 basis point hike. So, very little chance of a hike. Now, if your risk as a Treasury or as a, uh, a borrower is that well, gee, the RBA is going to hike, you would pay OIS. That means you would look for yields to go up to 175. Now, if it did, you would profit by 24 basis points because the meeting date settles at that 175 cash rate.
0: And you agree a, a, a fee for each basis point?
2: Uh, No, yes, well, a size. So you might say, look, my risk is that um, for every basis point it moves, I lose or gain $100,000 in risk. So you might say to a bank, I need to price uh, December OIS in 100K DV01. Now, there's another acronym, $100,000 of DV, dollar value, zero one per basis point. So you would, the general way you would come in is you'd say, 100k DVO1 December OIS, and that would mean they'd understand which way, or they'd understand what you're trying to do. They might ask you, "Are you a payer or a receiver?" Now, if you were like some out there looking for a cut, uh, no names mentioned here, but I'm sure we'll get to it. Receive all over the place. You would receive (laughs) OIS, and that would mean that if 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 they did cut, then it would go to 125, and you'd make 26 basis points off that 151 starting point, presuming that's the price you get. Of course, if, you, if it didn't happen, um, it settles at uh, 150, which actually means you make a basis point. But of course, markets are generally efficient. They're not pricing one basis point of likelihood of hikes for no reason. The RBA has pretty clearly said we're not hiking now. And certainly with what we've talked about with Bob and his friends, um, that's unlikely. And I guess if I go back to our own view, it's it's a 2019 story. And OIS is simply a way of handing off that risk to markets. Some want to take the other side of it, some don't. You can clear that risk through OIS, through futures, through uh, other swap products. But it's a way of banks particularly being able to hedge their risk and, of course, speculators being able to take on a view.
0: Yeah, so there's no... Um, it's it's just you pay the counterparty...
2: Yes. Um, uh, on, uh, ...on the settlement
0: date. So uh, the, the yeah. difference between... Do you need to mark-to-market? So is there a...
2: There's mark-to-market on, on sort of all products, yes. Yeah. So you have thresholds with counterparties. It might be, you know, let's say uh, two big banks facing each other have a lot of positions between them, and they might agree on a, a minimum of... If there's a $5 million difference between the two of us on a daily basis that's fine. But five minute and one, we have to net that difference out. Most of us now sit with our, our uh, over-the-counter trades, which are bilateral trades, with a counterpart in the middle called a clearinghouse. What that's done, and this is very much a thing that we've seen evolve from the futures markets since the crisis, is the clearinghouse sits in the middle as the buyer to every seller and seller to every buyer. That means if it was ANZ facing Lehman and Lehman went down, we're stuck if, if Lehman Otis money, but if the clearinghouse is paid in by everyone on a dynamic basis, you're kind of, okay, if one person falls, you've all got enough paid-in capital that it generally works.
0: So have the, are those houses more recent?
2: Clearinghouses have always been around for futures contracts, but they have been a feature of the market since, well, uh, probably about 2009, I would say, 10, and there are more of them. Most exchanges have them. Uh, Futures exchanges, and that's where they've derived from. And they're very powerful. And look, the the thing about them is they are a great thing to have. While many banks have said, oh, I don't like it because it means there's a bit more transparency, it's the best thing for the market because it does mean that you take out bilateral risks.
0: So uh, that's OIS. Yep. Where does LOIS come in? So So LOIS.
2: LOIS is is, uh, LIBOR, and that is the US dollar floating rate for bank credit. Um, and it's actually something that doesn't trade a lot. BBSW here does trade. It is where we will issue bills and where we do issue bills. LIBOR is a, an assumed rate. Um, it's got a lot of bad press for many reasons, but it's a, it's a rate that we assume we can borrow at. Now, the problem it had back in the day was people said, oh, I can borrow at, uh, at LIBOR, or LIBOR plus 5 or plus 10, the reality was they couldn't borrow at all, but they just said they could, and they would put their submissions in to say that. Now, gaming the system, or maybe in a lot of ways, they were trying to say, don't look at me because I'm having a lot of trouble funding, and if, if I do, you're not going to be a counterparty to me, and then the world's a very dark place. Now... It's fixed in a lot of ways. LIBOR will be running off in the next couple of years. It's been replaced by something called SOFA, another acronym, <laughs> SOFR. Get your feet comfortable on the SOFA. Um, and SOFA is uh, it's a repo rate based on an overnight cash rate. So it's very different to a bank funding rate. And it brings about a whole host of problems, uh, maybe one for another podcast if anyone <laughs> wants to talk about SOFA. We did a big primer on this to understand it because there is about um, – The number's about $3.5 trillion uh, worth of securities and loans that are priced off LIBOR. And if you do a new US dollar loan, you can't price it off LIBOR now because in a few years' time, those banks won't be submitting it, especially if it's a five-year loan. You have to price it off SOFA. So we're evolving in these benchmarks. The regulators are cleaning them up. Tick. Um, Are they perfect? No, they're not. And I think BBSW is one example of that because it is... I don't want to say it's div- it's uh, the RBA's lost control of its cash rate, but the because it hasn't, it, it's doing what it does, it's just that the real cost of borrowing has moved a long way. And LIBOR did that versus OIS mm. back in March, less so now, but it probably will again over the next two quarters. And LIBOR, which is where you fund your floating rates, is going to move away from the cash rate.
0: So it's um, certainly gonna maybe we will come back to sofa uh, at uh, at some point. Uh, it certainly sounds like it will be an interesting development. When will that roll
2: out? Um, it's so starting now that you you put into your contracts, um, March 2020 is when the um, sorry end of sorry end of 2021 is is when sofa will disappear. Uh, libel will disappear. Although you have to make a, a price until then, according to the regulators. Thereafter, it'll be. Mm-hmm on an ad hoc basis or a best endeavours basis.
0: Okay, um, I want to cover off one other thing, uh, which is that uh, I think particularly in June we saw a pretty significant pullback in in um, government bond yields. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it applied to... So there's all sorts of things going on. One is, obviously, we've got this trade tensions, uh,
1: David and I, uh disagree on whether to call it a trade war or trade tensions if it, if it kicks off tomorrow when the uh, the tariffs are 34 uh, billion worth of uh u.s uh, tariffs on chinese imports then i'll go and call it a war because china's already said that they'll go and reciprocate with the same amount and then obviously i think the u.s is still uh formalizing the last 16 so it's going to be a 50 billion worth of tariffs. So if that happens, then we'll call it a trade war. Yeah. There we go. We'll, then we'll be agreeing.
0: And actually, when we were having this conversation last week, I do want to point out that you you called out that if anybody wants to understand what's really driving um, global markets at the moment, to look at the, the, the UN. Um, and it was weakening last week, and it has continued to do so. PBOC has uh, had to step in and say, hey, look, we're, this is going to be okay. Don't worry about it. But surprise, surprise. And still weakening.
1: Yeah, it's, it's strengthened in the last, last couple of days, but uh, I wouldn't go and call it a you know, recovery of sorts. It's uh, just been stabilised, and uh, there's all this sort of speculation out there whether the uh, the PBOC is doing this deliberately as a, as a measure to go and uh, coerce the uh, the US to uh, sort of back down on their on their threats. But um, I know the rest of the markets, I've got to say, outside of bonds, uh, certainly equity markets seem to be uh, not really taking uh, too much interest or care in relation yeah. to what's going on, and I find that quite... Remarkable, given uh, what we're talking about and what the potential ramifications will be, but we'll see. You know, maybe they will come to the table. There'll be an agreement that everyone can go and, uh, and happen, and Trump will get his art uh, of the deal and everything else. But at the moment, it's uh, there's so much uncertainty. But particularly the riskier end of the uh, the asset spectrum seems to be uh, kind of immune to that at this point in time. So I find that interesting. And- I mean,
2: yeah, even when we look at credit spreads, uh, I guess as a proxy for equities, but in the bond market, mm. they've widened, but you know they haven't. They're not dramatically wider, no. uh, and it's nothing that would be overly unpleasant for any particular any borrowers out there. I mean, they have to watch that, of course. Mm. But um, yeah, like you said, equities have not really taken it too badly. Um, bond yields obviously fell. There's there's the fear factor. There was also a bit of weakening in the eurozone in on the inflation side. Um, that typically means that the real yield is very attractive. So that's the, the bond yield mm. nominal minus the inflation number. So they look attractive. Bond yields come back down. Um, and, you know, it's in an oscillation. It is heading higher in the broader trend, as I said earlier. But, yeah, you get these big dips. We're we're not at 3.10, like Jeff Gundlach said. We're, we're under that. And 3 almost seems a little distant. But certainly 3.5 seems distant as yeah. well.
0: Which is where a lot of people thought it would end up.
2: That said, you know, we've seen this time and time again. You can say, Oh, they're two ninety today and the next move could be two seventy five and before you know it, you've had some resolution, the art of the deal's through, as you say, mm. David, and you're at three oh one. You go, how did that get there? And then three oh one suddenly goes, Oh, it's gone through a level, three the next, it gets to three ten. It's just how much further beyond that it actually goes. So we're
0: Yeah, because, and certainly in a a world of where every fund manager for the last 12 months has been talking about the era of lower returns, particularly if you can get US Treasury bonds at 3 point something percent, 3.1, right, Um, and you're thinking about, you know, your portfolio over a 10-year time horizon, 3.1 probably looks like a pretty good part of the mix, right? Absolutely. Um, So With inflation at
2: 2, then you're getting 1.1 in real, and it's the same as, say, our 30-year bond. It's... uh, you know, a few months ago, that was was three and a half percent, and now it's uh, I think three oh three this morning because it's you know it's very attractive because we've got low inflation.
0: So, um, so, so there's this thing of right. So yields did fall, uh, yeah. and th- so we talked about this this global picture. Maybe some of that, you know, a bit of nervousness, bit of uncertainty out there, but there were other things, uh, technical factors, contracts, et cetera, that can move yields around. Um, And some people will – I think some commentators and uh, some analysts will look at where the yield levels are and take that as a macro signal, but it's not always the case. Not always. I mean, it's
2: positioning too. Every Friday you get something called the CFTC uh, Positioning Index. And uh, CFTC is another acronym, Commodity Futures Trading Commission. It's basically the the US um, – regulator uh, and they compile positions and in the us if you trade as a speculator or a hedger in any contract you know it could be wheat it could be bonds it could be fx you have to say whether you're a hedger or a speculator and what we see is we get these extreme moves in markets where the the, the bond market sells off so yields go up and uh everyone is super short i.e they're looking for higher rates and then there's no more s- buyers for any seller and, uh, and suddenly it just all turns around and you get a big reversal. And so we had that positioning and when positioning gets extreme, uh, it, it tends to turn and they're good signals. And uh, I'm not a great fan of technical analysis, but that is one thing that you just have to watch. Positioning can really drive markets beyond the macro
1: correct I mean, well, I, I watch the CFTC data quite a lot for the speculative positions in uh, the currency markets in particular to go and get a sort of it's, it's almost like a contrarian view like you, you can go and see what's happened in the past but you know that when it gets to a certain point it gets so stretched in one position that you know that as soon as like you know, the, the scary good news and don't even sometimes need a good piece of news and it'll just snap back and um, the people have been getting very short um, Aussie dollars I think earlier the year I in mean, US Treasuries and Tens they were at record high shorts uh, so you can see how I don't know, two things you put together, like you saw what happened with the other uh, US bonds at the moment. Now, we're back at you know, below two, 2.9% tens, so and that was just you know, a couple of months after there was a record uh, short position. It gives you a bit of a clue sometimes. that you know, Technical analysis, fine, fundamentals are sometimes, but sometimes you just don't have enough people to actually go and sustain the move.
2: And in that time, you've had two rate hikes from the Fed. You've had inflation hit its target. You're yeah. having, what is it, the 115th month in a row of expansion on the jobs market. All of those things say you've got to be short bonds. They're going higher yeah. but in yield, but- No, they've gone the other way because positioning will dictate that beyond fundamentals sometimes.
0: Very insightful. Um, I can't believe the time. Um, What I'm going to do is we did have a couple – I'd asked uh, some of our readers um, for some questions that we could put to you. Um, So let's do some pretty rapid fire uh, rundown through a few of these. So Kit Lowe, uh, which I thought was a fantastic question ask him why EFFR keeps moving to the top of the fed uh, the fed's 1.75 to 2% range and why the spread to IOER keeps moving it keeps moving in even though the fed made a technical change at the last FOMC yeah, so great we- question
2: kit um so EFFR is an acronym effective funds effective fed funds rate IOER interest on excess reserves Back before the crisis, the Fed used to hike and they'd give a target rate. They'd say, we're moving to 175. Now they move in a band. 175 to 2 is the current rate. So you might say, what's the the target rate? Well, it's 2%. Interest on excess reserves is money they pay for banks to put on deposit with them. You don't want um, banks to just stick their whole money in there and earn money from the Fed. And that was a congressional change they introduced a few years ago to pay. So what you do is you have that lower so that the banks do lend. Um, Basically, there's a whole lot of issues around the balance sheet reduction, which will reduce liquidity in the markets. And so we're at a point where not even the Fed's experts on plumbing can really come to uh, an agreement on this. Suffice to say, you won't see IOER. You'll probably see it get tweaked down again to say, listen, that excess money, please lend it out. Don't stick it on deposit with us.
0: Adam Smith, uh, Smith. uh, Well, he calls himself Adam Smith, right? (laughs) Um, But at is it casual, right? This is a good question too. Um, The late, uh, the rate rally uh, of late uh, last year was that caused wholly by U.S. bond contagion. Um, this is for, for Australia. Uh, so, the the rise in Australian government yields. Yes. Um, as he was pointing out, there's nothing notably positive uh, happening in the Australian domestic economy to justify a spike in Australian yields. So, are Australian bonds driven more by these contagion style triggers than, than, than yep. domestic? Yeah, and then, look,
2: every time you, you run the models, you can see that we have a, a very high correlation to, to global yields. Um, global yields are selling off, led by Europe and the US. Why? That whole synchronised growth story I mentioned earlier, we were seeing that, we were seeing inflation come through. So global yields went up. It became very clear that the Fed wasn't mucking around. They were going to hike. And so rates went up to compensate. We have to go up. We're a capital importing country. In order to get that money, we had to. our rates naturally follow it up. We went not one for one, like 0.8 to one. So we went through the US, as in our spread we went under the US. It remains there. Um, but, yes, that was it, and uh, I guess there was a bit more optimism around the rest of the world that, you know, QE was kind of done and we were moving into an, a, a quicker runoff of QE toward, or QT.
0: And, and the global economy was all looking was doing quite well. still quite good yeah. at the time. Uh, Stephen Kukoulos, uh, always uh, guaranteed to ask a provocative question. Why He wants to know, why is the government issuing – this is great uh, – and classic kook uh, – why is the government issuing 30-year bonds when there is uh, no need for them? Uh, or anything much past 15 years because we're um, about to uh, start posting surpluses.
2: So governments always borrow. They have um, exorbitant privileges. I think (laughs) the French one's called the the US borrowing or US dollar. And you can and you you should because if you looked at where a 30-year government bond would be in Australia today, 303%. Borrowing money for 30 years, well, we all do that for a mortgage. So why don't you borrow the money? And what you also do is... Uh, and I remember this back from 99, 2000, the US was buying back its debt. And, and I remember a strategist where I was working at City said, oh, mate, they're going to they're buy back all the debt and uh, there won't be any debt left. And I thought, but you know, economies move up and down and there'll be a recession at some point and you'll have to borrow money. We won't be buying all the debt back and have none. And sure as hell, we had the 9-11 happen and of course we borrowed and then we had the recession after that. And we've continued to borrow. We had A decade and a bit ago, we had a mining boom that left us with more money than we knew what to do with, literally, Uh, and uh, we parlayed that back into tax cuts. Now, we could have paid off all our debt. A lot of people would say, well, that's a great thing. But eventually, you come back. We had a recession a few years later. We needed to borrow debt. Now, you also need to create safe assets for banks to hold because they need to be able to liquidate those into cash in case you want your deposits. So you need to have a government bond curve that is risk-free. We have state governments that borrow money. They have, um, they might buy New South Wales, they might pay for a road over 30 years. They need 30 year debt to pay for it. And we need assets called HQLA, high quality liquid assets, that banks have to hold against those mortgages. And then you've got a price where banks and corporates borrow and they have to come at a risk-free rate. If we had no government curve, it'd be stick your finger in the air to see where BHP would borrow money or a bank would, and that would affect your mortgage rate.
0: What a great so they're very important things. Wh- wh- and it doesn't
2: cost much to borrow 30s.
0: No. Uh, what is it? What, what, you 44 said. basis
2: points over the 10 years, so 3.03%.
0: Right. Um, very super quick uh, answer to this last question. What would it take uh, for market pricing to shift uh, towards um, the RBA cutting rates?
2: Well, if you if you had um, a drop in inflation from here, and that doesn't seem that likely, it seems like it's not going to go up very much, but it's probably based, or if funding costs got so nasty that banks had to move out of cycle in a significant enough way that the RBA have to offset that, the markets would immediately price in the cuts. If you look at the OIS dates to about December, I think, we're about 149, so we're actually pricing in one basis point of cut now. Deliverable, no, in our view, but. It's not non-trivial. So,
0: look, that's been a fascinating chat, and it also brings us back to where we were at the very start, which is this whole question of that short-term money market and all those pressures on on banks, and it was starting to see it wash through into, um, uh, you know, the mortgage rates for the smaller lenders. Uh, this has been a fascinating chat. The next time we get you on, um, we'll have to talk about your fantastic taste in music. Uh, we were t- discussing it during the week. That you know, acid jazz is kind acid of jazz. up your up your street, which yep. is fantastic. Um, we're, we've run out of time because uh, I can't believe we're almost coming up on an hour you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia our guest this week has been Martin Wetton, Senior Rates Strategist at ANZ Martin thanks so much for coming on the show it's great to be here thanks a lot been a great chat David uh, thanks very much for being here with us this week it has been great cheers you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au we're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S we're also all on Twitter individually David Scott uh, Martin Wetton and myself, Paul Colgan. The show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on iTunes under Devil's in Details. We'll catch you next time.